My moped got stolen by a cat. Okay, welcome to episode six Holla. of the Failure Show. I'm Ben Frank. And I'm Ida Knox. Oh boy, it is a uh, lovely 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 weekend here it's not uh, it's gross yeah yeah people uh listening can't tell that that's sarcastic because you can't see what it looks like outside should Uh, i describe it in the same way that i describe all male guests that we have on the show yeah i think that's fair um Uh, how would you describe the weather if it was a male guest on the show right now you would only sleep with him once how and uh, I, I think that gives people a, a clear idea of what of what kind of weather it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would totally understand what the you weather would, is like. Because you would only sleep with someone um, very misty and hazy um, once. That's that's what that that's that what is that means. Obviously, what it means. Yes. Yeah, um, and someone who made it difficult for you to breathe, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't want to sleep with them more than once. Yeah, but the good news is is that this episode spans two cities, so the weather oh. might be nicer on the back end of the episode. Yeah, yeah, that is that is, that is true. Ida is uh, is right. This. Uh, <laughs> No, this this, this episode down. will uh, will be recorded in two different cities. Yeah, I guess it's a it's a pod of two cities. I don't know what uh, that not, that was a terrible it's not name. A thing. That's it's not that's a thing. it's not a thing. Not a name. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll have uh, yeah we're 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 recording the first first part of this in Shanghai like we like we normally do. But, yeah, um, we do. But uh, our guest for the weekend will actually be in uh, in Taipei, Taiwan. So that'll be that'll be fun. It'll be a first. First of anything that we record of the failure show outside of Shanghai, so that'll be super exciting. Um, yeah, and it, we might not even get to it because neither Ben nor I knows if you can fly with a microphone. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I just had this conversation with Ida, and I think it's. It, it, I thought it might be a stupid question, but you get stopped with everything in an airport these days. Like in, and it's different in every country. Like, like in China, I get stopped at security recently with like umbrellas. They make you take umbrellas mm. out. Yeah, them, yeah, they do. Which is, that's been a recent thing. Um, so I was like, I can't take for granted that a microphone is just fine, that no one's going to comment on it. I don't think I've, I've never been stopped for like stuff at an airport, but I do get frisked a lot. You do get frisked? Mm-hmm. Like when they like do the random, like pull out someone to search them. And you get randomly checked a lot. I get randomly checked, and when I was younger, as a girl? I was like, "Mom, well, see, this is the thing. I'm about thirty shades lighter as a human than I used to be in like high school." Because you weren't a human in high school. Um, no, I was a human with like pretty dark skin, and oh, I yeah, had, you, you're very light I'm now. I'm very pale now, but I used to like I grew up out in the sunshine, and I was always outside, and so. I literally, I'm going to find you a picture that no one on the podcast will be able to see. I used to be super, um, super tan. And my mom went to Right, that was when a, I during was your like, whole Kogan phase <laughs> that you, you were trying to be super well, tan. I, yeah, kind of, I guess. I was just outside a lot. And my mom was always like, oh, they stop and frisk you because they think you're Mediterranean. 
And I was like, Mom, that's not... That's not even a stereotype. <laughs> I know. It's like, but ooh, those, like, those Italian guys, they're up to no good. <laughs> but yeah, she was like, that's those why... Those Greeks. Like, that's why they do it. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that they those don't... Those Slovenians, <laughs> let's, get, let's get them. They're going through the airport. Yeah, but that was like a real thing that she, she used to say to me. And I was like, I don't think so. I think it's just random. Like, or maybe I had the name of like a suspected terrorist, but I kind of doubt it because my name is Ida Knox. Yeah. So not really all that terror-inducing. Yeah, right, look, at least at that this time. This is how tan I was. I'm showing Vin a picture. That's more tan than you are now. There you for go. For sure. Exactly. Um, Riveting stuff for, for <laughs> people listening. Everyone's having fun, right? You guys are having fun. All of our conversations revolve about <laughs> around how your skin looks and and what rate your hair is growing out. All, all, all visual things that people can enjoy so well over a podcast. I think everybody loves it. <laughs> yeah, everybody's um, really interested. Do you, do you want to hear a story? Uh, since I'm not actually going to be on the later half of this uh, of this episode, I'm not going to be in Taipei. But I do have a failure this week that I feel like everyone should know about. Okay. Yeah. 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 That, yeah that's true because you won't be involved in the the failure of the um, week segment later. So I you won't. Should probably I just won't. Tell it okay. Now. So. I lit dinner on fire this week. I lit a beef and cheddar pie on fire. <laughs> um, I It was frozen and... <laughs> well, it wasn't frozen when I lit it on fire. All right, let's start from the beginning. I pulled it out of the freezer and went to make it because I was sad. And when you're sad, you make beef and cheddar pies. And <laughs> that's, that's a fact, people. Yes, Remember that. that when you are sad, you make cheddar pies. So if you are making a cheddar pie, that means you are sad. <laughs> well, I wanted like a comfort food type of thing. So I wasn't going to make a comfort food because like what I make is like raw Brussels sprouts. So... I put it, but the instruction said microwave it for three to four minutes and then put it in the oven for three to four minutes. So I microwaved it for four minutes and put it in the oven for four minutes. And like I started to hear a weird noise from my room while it was in my toaster oven. And I was like, what is that noise? Maybe I should go check on my dinner. And I came out and I looked in the toaster oven and I was like, holy shit. The whole top, the like puff pastry top of the beef and cheddar pie is engulfed in flames. <gasps> like, oh. not like slightly yeah, charred. Oh, so you, yeah, you didn't just like blacken it. It was there was a no, live no. fire. It was like on fire. So I was like, shit. So I opened the toaster oven because I was like, this probably isn't good. And I started trying to blow it out, but like it was way more intense than any birthday candle you've ever faced. And <laughs> I was like trying to blow it out, and I couldn't really blow it out. And then I finally got it blown out. And then I scraped the whole, like lifted the top of the puff pastry off and just like, it was just black. It was just charred and black and I threw it away and I ate the rest of the pie. <laughs> oh, so you, so you took off the top, but then the rest you're like, oh, that's fine. Yeah, but the sad, the failure part is that the best part of like, when I say pie, I mean like, you know, British pie is the puff pastry part mm, and I burned yeah. it all and had to like just eat beef and cheddar that had been like cooked yeah be warm beef and cheddar yep which is it. probably still all right but it's no puff pastry it was a low-key failure also i thought for a second i was going to die but it's the worst thing that's happened to me since i started to hydrate right yes <laughs> yeah yeah Hy hydration was the worst thing but beef and cheddar pie is now the worst thing. is now the worst thing yep well wow, it's a it's a rollicking start to uh I don't think you like my stories, Ben. I like I like them because they are good fodder for this podcast. 
yeah. I'm starting to like feel like maybe the reason you chose me as a co-host was less of like, we have good rapport and more like you are an endless heap of failure and I would like to harvest it for my podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think I just kind of stumbled <laughs> into that by accident. I don't know if I knew... That's all good. of that about you when I was like, oh, she'd that be good for this podcast. That my like outward persona is still like has her shit together. Where on the inside, I'm just lighting dinners on fire left <laughs> and right. <laughs> that that would be a, that would be a good um, good name for your um, comedy special. On the inside, I'm lighting dinners on fire. Ooh, something to aspire to. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got we got a lot to get to here, so I guess let's uh, let's just go right into fail or pass. Fail or pass? This is fail or pass. You probably know the drill by now, but if you don't, we're going to review stories that have been in the news recently and decide whether the principles involved fail or pass, whether they are definitely at fault or whether what they did is not so bad. Uh, so, Ida, do you want to want to start off with your story? Sure, I will. My story, as always, is from the Times because it's the only the New York Times because it's the only news I read because I pay for it. <clears throat> <laughs> it is in the science section, filed under trilobites. Title: Prey: colon, The reason turtles first came out of their shells. And it basically, the gist of this is that turtles are not the peaceful creatures that slowly become roadkill that we once thought they were. And the reason that turtles, like this is based on science. (laughs) (laughs) Good. The reason that turtles can draw their heads back into their shells is not, it turns out, because they're like protecting themselves. It's so that then they can, like, pop out, surprise their prey, and eat it. So turtles are not actually, like, peacefully hiding in their shells. They're trying to just, like, bite the shit out of the world. Um, so this is a pass or fail for turtles. <laughs> <laughs> are we? A fail or pass. I'm sorry. A fail or pass for turtles. So are we just failing or passing them on their inherent nature yes. and what they are? <laughs> Because I feel wrong. You feel. You I feel, feel. I feel a personal affront, and I know I said that I would start picking stories that I didn't have a deep emotional connection to. It turns out I have a deep emotional connection to everything, and I can't help it. And I feel like my childhood perception of like the box turtles that we used to like keep in you know boxes until they like kind of died, and my mom made us set them loose is entirely wrong. They're not peaceful creatures. They are warlords of the backyard. I I bet you can't guess whether I'm going to fail or pass turtles. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. It sounds sounds like you're leaning in in the fail direction. I, I I mean, I'm just thinking I guess we misunderstood them, but I how many like what what animals are going to fall prey to them? Like turtles move so slowly. So, like I, I don't like I don't get I don't really just understand this. I, I mean, I guess at this point in my life, I would have to say lettuce. Uh, might be the animal that would fall prey. Um, I think it's also like turtles in water is a big one. So like, oh okay, they turtles, move faster. Yeah, when they're like hidden under the mud or whatever, or they're like sitting on a okay. log and then they like eat the fish. I mean, okay. we always knew snapping turtles were like because they move faster in the water. Devil. That makes sense. But yeah, so turtles are pretty much the worst. Um, yeah. 
I don't feel the same personal affront on this that you do. Uh, the the same emotional connection to turtles. Wait, can I tell you what might make you feel it? Listen to the first paragraph. It's really short. Okay. If you are reading this hunched over your desk or smartphone, take this moment to loosen up your neck. Move it up and down. Now side to side. Roll it clockwise and counterclockwise. Now retract it into your shell. Oh wait, you can't do that. You are not a turtle. <laughs> Um, that would be Nicholas St. Floor, who wrote this article for the New York Times, and wow. I think he's brilliant. Wow, that is a <laughs> that is a hilarious first paragraph, right? Like, how do you make people give a shit about a scientific study about turtles and their origins? That okay, that made you care. You can just imagine like that science guy being like, "How can we tie this into smartphones?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to say I'm gonna pass the turtles that they. Okay. They just are the way they are, and I think it's if we under, if we misunderstood them all this time, then that's our fault. That's on us. That's not on the turtles. And while that is very comforting for the future of our friendship, I still fail turtles. Okay, you're gonna fail the turtles because they deceived you. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll move on to my story. Um, my story is not about turtles. Good. Surprisingly, cool. I'm shocked. Um, it. Centers on, I guess this is maybe last weekend at this point, mm. um, but at the Munich Security Conference, uh, many people were there, including uh, Mike Pence mm. and Bono. Sure. Yeah. The match made in heaven. Right. Bono, lead singer of U2. So, and while they were there, at one point, they, like Bono and Mike Pence interacted, and Bono uh, uh, showed appreciation or thanked Mike Pence, because apparently... It, Two, at two different points when Mike Pence was in Congress, he voted for bills that gave like uh, health relief or like AIDS relief to Africa that or that or such stuff was included in those bills that Mike Pence voted for. Sure. Did Mike Pence know that it was included? Was he just like surprised? <laughs> um, I think he knew, but I'm not sure. And so this is this isn't the controversial part. But then there was an outcry on Twitter about this because. Even if Mike Pence voted for these bills, apparently in his own state of Indiana, he dramatically defunded HIV and AIDS treatment, oh and it gave them gave Indiana one of the highest uh, HIV AIDS rates in the developed world. Okay, you have to tell me this is not a failure pass on Mike Pence. So this is a failure pass on one one of the failure pass that were evaluating here is Bono for thanking Mike Pence and the other is on these people in the Twitterverse who ah. who went who like went off on Bono for thanking Mike Pence. So those are the two Um Wow. I do feel qualified to pass judgment on Bono just based on my own personal life achievements. I feel like I can pass judgment on Bono. <laughs> um <laughs> Um Yeah. Oh well what do you think? Well my my feelings on this are interesting because I think like Bono people are very uh, quick to kind of rush to judgment and hate him because he's been doing this sort of humanitarian thing for a long time and I think a lot of people think he kind of self promotes a little bit mm -hmm. in terms of how humanitarian he is and I think that rubs people the wrong way so mm -hmm. they're always looking for ways to poke holes in his humanitarianism sure um and this is like a good opportunity to jump in on that so i understand why people did it uh at the same time i don't know if bono 
should be expected, even if he specializes in trying to get AIDS relief to Africa, and that's one of his big goals, I don't know if he should be tasked with knowing what the local policies on HIV AIDS treatment is for like every state in the United States or every small area of every country in the world. Yeah. Um, no, and I mean, definitely not. I'm sure it's very possible one of his staffers or his assistants just told him, oh, hey, Mike Pence, we saw he voted for these two AIDS things. Like, you would appreciate that. Oh, I would say it's 100% possible. That's like, I'm happened. sure he didn't do his own, like, big research on it. And, and even if, like, you're going to say overall, like, oh, Mike Pence has not done uh, good work hmm. in, the, in the field of HIV and AIDS... The, if he voted for these things in Congress, then that's a fact. And if Bono is thanking him for that, he's thanking him for that and not yeah. what he did in the state of Indiana. So I think I'm probably on board with you. I mean, I passed Bono because you're not responsible for every other human and everything they've done. Um, I do think that like people on Twitter probably pull the whole like, um, like I oh god, I like don't. Never mind. I was going to say, like, people equate things to the whole, like, Hitler liked dogs, but if you were going to be like, oh, like, let's like Hitler because he liked dogs or whatever, like, obviously that would be bad. Um, I don't really think Mike Pence is, like, quite on that level, although he is, like, pretty horrible. But I think the, the tricky thing is that even when you have horrible people, you kind of, like, especially if they're already in that position of power, like it's good to take a realistic stance on like, well, what is some small good that you can pull from it? And I, I guess like it's fine to thank him if he like voted for a bill that did that. Um, so I, I, I guess I failed Twitter though, just as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard because also it's different for people to go out on Twitter and talk about how bad any public figure is versus like if you meet someone in person face to face like, maybe Bono is just looking for, like, he's like, I have nothing in common with this guy. Like, is there something nice that we can talk about? Yeah, I mean, like, what's is he going to do? Ground? Like, walk up to Mike Pence and be like, fuck you, motherfucker, and then, like, you know, subtweet at him? Like, yeah. So, like, I don't know if that's a legitimate expectation. I don't know if this means that he totally supports what Mike Pence is doing, but I think a lot of people on Twitter, they're like, they see, like, Bono, like, he's not from America, and they're like, you know, how dare you, like, use your influence to tell people how great Mike Pence is. He's not uh, great. Yeah. So, I mean, you do have influence, but but I think that a lot of people, like, I mean, just skipping YouTube entirely, because that's, like, the scum of the earth, but, like, Twitter is, like, real people, and you're sort of at least mostly tied to your account and your identity there. And I think people just, like, look for stuff to be pissed about on Twitter. There's so much real stuff to be pissed about, like, there is, and occasionally, like, a Twitter outcry is good or like relevant or exposes some something useful but i think a lot of times like stuff that trends on twitter is just a waste of time yeah and i i think i'm definitely going to pass bono i don't think he did anything necessarily wrong here the the people in the twitterverse i have a more difficult time with because i kind of understand from this perspective of like what i just said with people wanting to you know, people who know like Mike Pence is not a good guy and has yeah, done no, all these, and, and like they want, and they just don't want that message getting out, and they want to make sure that uh, you know that people know about all these bad things that he's done. But at the same time, I, I 
it annoys me that we live in a world where we can't have any nuance when talking about people that like if someone does things that are a majority bad that means they've never done anything positive in their life or that we can't we can't ever talk about anything they've done in a positive light Mm. even if they have done things like it it's that's a little annoying to me. I think so, it's frightfully important to understand nuances in people. Yeah, so that probably leads me to not tips. that I would ever pass yeah. Mike Pence on any level, like he is the scum of the earth. But he, I'm definitely going to pass Bono here. Yeah, and it tips the scales for me to. I think it's close, but I think I'm going to fail the the people in the Twitterverse and pass Bono. There we go. Okay, that's been uh, fail or pass. Let's uh, let's get on uh, to the next segment. Failure of the week. All right, so uh, we're uh, we're here recording this in in Taipei. The first the first segment we've ever done outside of Shanghai, and I'm with uh, the man who actually brought me here to do uh, to headline a show this weekend uh, in Taipei. Sam Yarbrough. Sam, welcome to uh, the Failure Show. Welcome to Taipei, Ben Frank. That's great to have you here, man. You killed it last night. That was a lot of fun, man. Oh yeah, dude. It was it was a it was an amazing show. I mean, because that's what was that only. I mean, it was only the second or third show you've had in that. In that yeah, that venue. was our third of the monthly shows that we're doing. Yeah, we do a monthly like showcase show. That was only the third one, and we had to turn people away at the door. Ben Frank brought them out. So yeah, was, it turned. Was, I heard twelve people couldn't get in, and they, they were in. they were mad as hell they too. Yeah, they missed out on their Ben Frank for the for the year. I think. So yeah, so we, yeah. we have to get you back. Those twelve people are going to be upset if you're not back. So yeah, I know there were people. I was like, I was talking to them on the, the sidewalk, and they were like, "Oh, you know, you were headlining the show. I wanted to get in, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't let me." <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, it was about 110 degrees downstairs with the number of people we had. <laughs> so if anyone else had gone downstairs, we might have just like spontaneously combusted. It was it was it was a, it was a sweat box down there. So yeah, yeah, I know. Like I know, like it's one of those things you don't like when you're performing. You don't like notice unless it's like really really scorching. You don't really yeah. notice it because you're just. You're in the moment. You're you're doing your jokes. Yeah. And like as soon as I got off stage, I was like, "Wow, it is hot in here." It's hot, yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Someone, one of the audience members, said, "Like my favorite part of the show was watching the, the watching people's uh, sweat stains grow throughout the <laughs> court, from the opener to the closer. Just everyone's pit stains getting larger and larger." As oh my god! It was yeah. It got it got hot, but that's I mean that's what happens. We packed it up. So it yeah, great. you packed it out. You did a good job promoting the show. It was it was. Yeah, as I said, it was super, super fun. The crowd was great. They're really supportive. All the all the openers were were really were really solid. And yeah, um, yeah looking forward to to coming back again. But I mean, Definitely. but you um, you recently, I mean, you recently moved to Taipei. Yes, you weren't. You've been living in Taiwan, but you were you were living somewhere else before. Yeah, I was. So I've been living in Taiwan for three years, and I was in Kaohsiung, which is the southern city. I yeah, the, the second biggest city behind Taipei. Behind Taipei, yeah. In, in it's kind of like 1A, and then there's a big drop down to number like 2, 3, 4, 5, you know? It's like, yeah. Uh, Taiwan's like, what, 22 million, and there's 8 million in Taipei, so that, that's like, that's a that's a big chunk. Kaohsiung's not even half as big, but... Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, and I guess, it, and it's also just a big jump, yeah, in terms of just, 
international relevance and just kind of the number of foreigners that are there. Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, and and the comedy scene, you know, that's that's the main reason I moved up here is, um, you know, we've got weekly open mics up here and stuff like that, so it's, it's better draw. You know, we can get visiting guests like you coming through, so it's a, yeah, so that's a lot. Yeah, I guess it's, it's a little bit easier to pitch Taipei than to pitch just, just going down to Kaohsiung for a single... It's Kaohsiung for a show. Yeah, where's the show going to be? It's going to be at a... Harry's Burger Shack on Fushing with, with, Room. With, yeah. with the with the with those eight with the eighty year old sailors and sixty year old Filipino prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much. Yeah, that's our that's our, our choice of venue is a little more limited. But um, you know, yeah, the, the Filipino girls they like they like they like the comedy show, so they'll be good. Yeah, and next yeah. time we'll get you down. We'll do well. It. They're 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 English speaking, so yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, solid audience yeah. members. Unta- a yet untapped market. We'll have to. We'll <laughs> We'll have to pitch some shows down the uh, in the sailor bars. So yeah, casual. right. Just taking advantage of uh, all that, uh, all the all, all those port people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The docks, man. Yeah. That's yeah. That's where that's where you that's where you go for 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 comedy. But um, I don't know. How have you how have you been getting settled up here up here in in Taipei? Pretty well. I mean, you know, like Taipei is a really easy city to live in. If if you don't know Taipei, you know, it's a, it's a it's a big uh, the biggest Taiwanese city. Um, it's really easy to get around. The, the level of English here is really, really high. It's very, very convenient. You know, it's, it's so nice here. Everyone's so friendly. So I, I, lo- I love Taiwan. I, I love Taipei. Um, the hardest adjustment has been um, has been my job. I just start, I'm an English teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I've just started at a new school. And um, I forgot how much I hate starting at a new school. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, I was at my old school for the last two years. And you, you learn the system. You learn how things go. And starting again is just... Uh, can be brutal, man. Yeah, so it's been it's, that's been the toughest adjustment. It's been being the new guy at work again, basically. Yeah, and we and we briefly you briefly mentioned this to me last night. You said like in you know in Kaohsiung you were teaching maybe a lot of more like working class kids, and then yeah. here at this school you're teaching like a lot of rich kids, and it's yeah. been a big difference in terms of like you know discipline and yeah. how, how you deal with them dude, like mommy's coming to pick up these kids you know in the BMW with the tented windows and they, they don't do this don't give a shit you're like I'm gonna call your mom they're like fine my mom's wrapped around my finger I don't care at all <laughs> I'm not afraid of my parents at all so that's a big adjustment and also like I gotta say like the particular school I'm at like um, I don't know what it is but it seems like they have attracted a, a, a larger group of kids who are somewhere on that autistic spe- spectrum than any school I've been at before. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand, man. I have one class. There's eight kids in this class, and first of all, I should say that these kids are all wonderful. Like they're great. They're great kids, but <laughs> some of them are fucking loony. And this one girl, the entire class, she's sitting there, and she has I don't know what it was. I think it was her underwear in her hand, or was like a blanket. I think, but I think it was a, a pair of underwear, and she's just going. She's sniffing it through the class, putting it up to her nose, and like every like fifteen seconds or so. And here's how bad the rest of the class is. I just let her slide. I was just like, "All right, you're sniffing your underwear, but you're not." You're like priorities. Yeah, priorities. Priorities. Yeah. priorities, Sam. Yeah. There are like thirteen other things that yeah. require way greater English. attention. Yeah. That she, if, if that's keeping her speaking English and sitting in a chair, you can hang on to your underwear for right now. But out like, of curiosity, what are the things? Besides that, that required dramatically greater attention. I've got one kid who literally will chase girls around and, and try to grab their ass, and he's just, he's, he's about nine years old. Like this okay. is like he's like old enough to probably know that you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. And so he's like out of the chair, like running around, like like pr- pretty much harassing women, like just you know <laughs> like very little. Like it's not, not much to say to a kid like that. Like hey man, you 
You can't do that. Why not? Because you can't do that, man. You all right? Like, I don't know how many ways do I have to tell this. Stop <laughs> touching the girls next to you. You're like, yeah. So, so he, yeah, he's, it's been an interesting first couple of weeks trying to get used to these. Uh, yeah. These, these big city rich kids think they can get away with everything. I guess so. Yeah, man. You see where that, yeah, that privilege comes from, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Man, it's been, it's been, so that's been the roughest adjustment, getting used to the new school, man. When when exactly did you start doing comedy? Did you start it in Taiwan or did you start it at some other point? Yeah, so I did. Uh, so I started doing comedy two years ago in Kaohsiung. Um, my buddy was opening um, an, an open mic night, and it was like a Thursday night in Kaohsiung. And uh, and he contacted me like he had just heard that I was interested in doing comedy. I, I talked about like really liking comedy, and he kind of pitched it to me as like, oh, it's gonna be this like open mic night. You can just go up and do two or three minutes. Like it's no problem. There's a bunch of other comics. You'll be on there. Like. And, uh, you know, initially I said, no, I just wanted to come and watch, but he, he really, like, pushed me to, he's like, everyone says they will watch their first time. Like, your first time, this is the best time to do it. There's no expectations. There's no pressure. Let's come and do it. So I said, fine, all right, I'll do it. I showed up the night of the show. Turns out he was the only other comic that night. So oh. he, he opened in 10 minutes. I came up and did my, like, terrified two minutes. And then he closed in another, like, 10 minutes to close down the show. Wow. And then we had, like, music people come on for the rest of the night. And oh, the wow. So that was my first time doing it. And, um, and But, you know, like, I had one line that worked. And I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm going to do this probably for the rest of my life. You know, I'm just gonna, I, I yeah. fell in love with it immediately. So. I, I think when those... It's weird in... When you get the farther you go, and I, you know, I, I'm still at the point where I'm pretty new as well. I've been doing it for like, a, a, like a year and a half. Yeah. But you know, even at that at that point, you, you get to the point where like, you're focusing on all the things that didn't hit, all all the jokes, all the places yeah. where you didn't get laughs. But those first those first time or two on stage, yeah. you have no idea what to expect. So. If you get any laughs at all, it means so much. Well, so much to you. Well, I think uh, Mike Birbiglia had a great quote about that. It's like, comedy is like just an insane pursuit. Like your first five years, you're terrible. You mm -hmm. know, you're not good for your first five years. But you get off stage the whole time. He's like, oh, that went all right tonight. It's like, no, it didn't go all right. Like, you know, you're not good at it yet. You haven't done it long enough yet. You know, you're still, you're still, you know, but there's no other way to get better than to do it. You know, there's no practicing in your room. There's no doing scales or something like that. It's not like music, you know. You right, to, exactly. You have to fail constantly, publicly. Yeah. For years until you, you, you're good enough, so. Yeah, and I mean, like, I guess doing, you know, by the time I, I started doing comedy in Shanghai, like it, it's already for Asia a pretty developed scene. But mm. you kind of have been at the at the vanguard of mm. of Taiwan's comedy scene, and yeah. I, you've probably had to do some some pretty some pretty rough rooms. Yeah, there's um, been a few. There's been a few really really bad ones. And I should say like. Uh, um, especially if any of the uh, Taipei folks uh, listen, like there, there, there was a, an established scene in Taipei for a while, especially guys like Handel who was there last night. It's one of the um, you know godfathers of the scene that started it there. But outside of Taipei, there really wasn't, and that's where me and my buddy um, took his van and started getting on the road. Oh yeah, you and you and you and Rob, me and Rob, yeah, Rob, me and Rob loading up, yeah, loading up old Bessie, his uh, his, uh, his beat up surf van. And we'd oh. drive all around the island to find uh, find foreigner bars that would have us let us do stand up there. And some of those nights, yeah, got got pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the interesting thing about Taiwan. It's just like, in terms of the size, like, you know, compared to mainland China, there's like no comparison. It, yeah. So like, you can literally 
take that van all around the island and almost exhaust every opportunity for rooms. Yeah, very uh, very yeah. quickly. Very quickly, yeah. Like I had a friend, like if people it's don't know the size of Taiwan, like I had a friend in 24 hours, he circumnavigated the whole island on a motorcycle. So you can, in a day, you can literally drive the entire the entirety of the island. He took like naps on the on the side of the road. It's a crazy thing to do, but that gives you a sense of how, of how right. Just that it's that possible. Yeah, it is possible. You know, like yeah, north to south is a six hour drive. Like that's the whole island. You know, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, it's that, so you run out of you run out of towns real quick. But in, in all these little towns, there's expats, and where there's expats, there's expat bars and places where uh, maybe they're looking for something new. And so sometimes we've had success. And sometimes not. <laughs> sometimes the opposite. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's really fascinating to me when these when these scenes when these comedy scenes start. No. Just you know, because it's a combination of the the resources aren't there, mm. the the rooms are terrible, the comics don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But you're just. You're learning. You're you're learning on the fly. Yeah. And it, and the venues are like outright skeptical or like blatantly hostile. You know, like they're, they're like I, we were at a venue in Taichung in this one show. It was our first time going there, uh, and we had convinced the owner to let us give it a try and do this show. And he was just telling us before the show started, he's like, "Yeah, uh, interested to see what happens. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think my customers are going to like it. I don't think it's going to go well." Like, well, thanks for that vote of confidence before we get on stage and start, yeah. and start the show. Like you like clearly like you said you barely want us to be here. Like what you know so. But uh, we've had a few rough ones. Um, the, one of my favorite memories of one of the shows we did is in a town um, called uh, Zhongli. Have you ever heard of Zhongli? No, I've never heard of that. Zhongli is like a suburb of a suburb of Taipei. It's just, a, it's, I don't even know how we found this place, but it's, uh, it's, out, uh, it's out on the, on the high-speed rail line and you go out there. And so they have one foreigner bar called The River. And downstairs at The River, there's a, there's a comedy club. Um, there's a stage and, and, and we put on a comedy show there. And the night in the bar, we get to the bar and we find out that it's a holiday weekend and all the teachers have to work that evening. So oh. none of the teachers are there that night. So our audience consists of four friends that we've dragged along who are sitting in the front and then like eight Taiwanese guys in the back playing pool who don't know they're at a comedy show. If they did know they're at a comedy show, wouldn't be happy about that fact. Like we're just not interested in the proceedings. So I went up and hosted, and I did about like I tried ten minutes of just my of the my best material yeah. to nothing to to crickets to worse than nothing. My favorite part of the night was we had one comic, and it was his first time ever doing comedy. Um, he had come from this small town in Taiwan, and he got up and he starts his set. This is his first set ever. He comes up to the front of the stage and he starts his set. He goes, "So the gays." <laughs> I've got a problem with them. And then he launches into this, oh God. this eight minute bit, like, I don't like some 1970s shit about like, who decides who gets to fuck who? Do they play like rock, paper, scissors? And then like, oh, you, you fuck me on Saturday, but I fuck you on Sunday. Like he's never actually like talked to a gay person in his life. He's, oh no, my God. He's literally so, and then after eight minutes of this, he stands in front of the stage and is completely silent in the audience and, he's, and he says, so is anyone here gay? <laughs> <laughs> Like, at that point, someone's hand's going to fly up. Like, oh, yeah, so I just sat listening to your fucking... Right. I, 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 hung, I hung in there for eight minutes. <laughs> like, I, like, I was patient enough to take that abuse, and now I'm just going to, like, volunteer that, that's, that that's, that's me. That that's me. And this is what we were talking about last night. Like, 
you get some like uh, some of the comedians are so delusional. After the show, he's at the bar and he's got like he's puffed out like a peacock, and he's like he's like yeah, I think I was just a little too controversial for John Lee. It's like, that's yeah, like, no man, right? Yeah, this this whole attitude that like oh well, my shit's really good, but these people just weren't ready for they me. They weren't ready for me. You know, they, they they weren't they weren't there. I brought it, but yeah, John Lee was a was a, was a bad show because of the, the circumstance that evening. But um, one of the other shows, me and my friend Rob, we we're talking about Rob did. Uh, was in Taichung, which says the middle city in Taiwan, uh, and we started at this bar. It was called uh, Cafe Britannia, and the problem was they had no sound system at their bar. So we had a stage and a setup in the corner, but we had no microphone. Mm. So we're just talking to the bar, and mm. the first time this worked beautifully. Like the whole audience kind of understood that, like, hey, for this show to work, we need to be quiet and gather around and listen to the comedians, or else this is all going to fall apart. And it was really like kind of like a, an interesting show. Like there's this great feedback with the crowd. The second time was the opposite. The audience didn't give a fuck. They were loud as hell, ordering drinks because the bar is just right there. And everyone. And so Rob starts out, and there's like four guys in the audience who are just being super loud and going through. And one of these guys is a middle-aged white guy. He's wearing a powder blue uh, sweater with a with a robin's egg blue scarf around his neck. And he's got a he's got a man. Belt. I like that. I like that you clearly delineated between powder blue and robin's egg. Yeah, they're they're, like, they're, like they're like almost matching, but just like a little bit weirdly off. It was just like and he had this like man bun thing going on, and uh, and he was just and so Rob's talking to him and like uh, and he's like, man, can you please be quiet? Like, come on, like we should be buddies, man. Like, come on, like look, I got a big beard, like you know, you've got like some long hair, like we look like the kind of guys we should be friends. This guy turns around and goes, you look like a douchebag. So, <laughs> so Rob just gets furious. He gets fucking mad. So, and, and so he keeps talking. So it's my turn to go on stage. So I get up on stage. Meanwhile, Rob goes outside. So behind me, I'm on stage. Behind me is a giant glass window. So you can see out front where everyone's having smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And so behind me, Rob is angrily confronting the guy in the scarf and the sweater, like trying to get him to go down the alley and fight because Rob wants to beat him up. So he's like pulling on his shoulder. So you can see this over my shoulder. This is, I, it sounds like a scene out of like a sitcom where like something's <laughs> happening in the foreground, but you're, there's like something crazy happening in the, back, in in the, the background, background that like then, everyone sees, but, but no one's commenting on. In the foreground, because I start going at one of the other guys who's like, he's not even heckling. He's just doing like word association. He's just yelling things drunkenly. Um, you know, and so I start like, and I start being like, man, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you, you gotta be quiet. Like, you're ruining the show. And for a second, I feel the audience is like behind me. They're like, yeah, he's gonna shut down the heckler. And then I keep yelling at him. I'm like, no, you're a fucking piece of shit. Like, I hope you leave. And then you can feel the audience just turn on me because I'm just way too angry. And you can feel this like audible like groan, like, oh. And then they're all back to like the bar, back to their drinks. So it's me basically on stage losing it, yelling at a heckler. And behind me in the in the in the window is Rob trying oh. to fight another heckler. So it's one of the yeah one of the one of the worst shows. We have it on video somewhere. I've got oh to my god! I've got to it, put it on YouTube somewhere. It's such a, when you're dealing with a heckler, it's such a fine line. Yeah. Um, between knowing when they're behind you, like knowing when to pounce, because obviously, if you pounce too early, then you're just like the guy who's yelling at an audience. Member. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. if you if you pounce at the right time. Then like you could say anything and people will be behind you. Exactly. Yeah. Like like I, I had yeah I had a gig like an open mic where again it was an uncharacteristically rowdy Shanghai crowd. Yeah. Um, and like people were just like making snarky comments out of nowhere. Like I did the the a thing where I mentioned like Tinder in passing. Yeah. And like one of the girls in the front row was like, she just was like, 
ugh, adios. Like, she just looked at me like... It just like it just like commentary and just yeah. and she she was one of those people that the the host of that night will remember she just had a she just had like a a really strong resting bitch face yeah, yeah. And like and, and like a really bad person to sit in the front <laughs> row in the center yeah. of a comedy show and she made that comment and then there was this other girl that was like coming in late that everyone was waiting for and as soon as I got on stage they were all chanting her name was Helen they're like Helen and they started like a Helen chant right as I like was going on stage and all of a sudden Helen was like pissed off when she walked in that the attention was on her but like it was them that did it but she was mad at me and then all these girls were literally mad at me for no reason I wasn't making jokes offensive to women (laughs) but then I just like I tried to keep doing material but after like two or three minutes it was clear it wasn't happening and then like eventually I just stood there and I looked at the girl in the front row and I was just like you know I usually don't get upset on stage but I really just want to throw this microphone stand at you. And then, like, everyone was just like, yeah! <laughs> they were ready. They're yeah, ready. they were ready. Like, I had been so patient. Then all of a sudden, like, Helen in the back is, like, saying shit to me. Right. Then all of a sudden, like, I just start literally yelling at the top. Like, I've listened to the recording. You can barely hear what I'm saying because I'm just yelling so loud <laughs> into a microphone at the top of my lungs. Like, like I... like. I got a whole crowd at a comedy show to yell your name. That's the best thing that's going to ever happen in your entire life. And this is what you do to me. And everyone's just like going crazy. They're like, (laughs) That's great. But it's just like if I had pounced too early, like that could have been disastrous. Yeah, yeah. The timing needs to be absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And like sometimes you just don't know. But anyways, um, just rants rants about about odd, uh, odd hecklers. It's not even hecklers that like you know like a good heckler like if, like to me a heckler is like someone who listens to your joke and has a line you know to like to get at you you know there's something clever about a good heckle and you gotta kind of respect that you know a little bit like but like the worst is just the loud drunks who are just like they're not heckling they're just shouting out like they'll hear like a word you said they're like oh yeah like yeah Chinese but and just like go off on like a tangent like you know mm-hmm. it's, it's basically like the drunk word association more than like heckling there's nothing clever behind it so yeah. I don't know what you do about those people man yeah um, but I mean I mean that said I guess like what you know since you've gotten into into comedy mm-hmm. like what kind of have you have you changed you know because as comedians we all you know, just continuously fail on stage yeah. all the time. Like, have you changed the way you think about kind of failing as a comedian or failing in general or like what failure is to you since you've started being a comedian and it's just like a part of your life now? Absolutely, yeah. Like, like failing on stage, like failing constantly and like... Um like, uh, one thing that's changed, like, I get nervous if I, if I don't fail for a long time, you know? If you have, like, you ever have that where you have too many, like, good sets in a row, and you're like, you know... You have, like, an impending sense of doom. Yeah, exactly. You know it's coming. You almost want to, like, you almost, like, I want to, like, kind of suck, you know? I want to, like, have a bad night or something like that, because, you know, you, you can't string it together forever, you know? It's not... You know, right, because it's like, you, it's like the, it's like the impossible quest to kill every time. Yeah. Like, yeah. you set out to do it, but you know it's not going to happen. You know it's not going to happen, yeah. So, yeah, it's trying to, yeah. So, and part of that is, but is trying to avoid sabotaging yourself, you know, like making sure, you know, it, it, knowing, you got, you got to be consistent every time. You got to be really prepared. You got to, you got to be ready to go up every time and, 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 and be really mentally ready each time. 
um, and that can be and that can be tough when you know that the um, that the possible outcome is failing or bombing in front of people or something. So uh, trying to avoid sabotaging yourself is a big thing. But yeah, like no, the the failure. Um, that's the great thing about being able to go on stage more often is not being afraid of that failure as much. You know, when you if you're going on stage once a week, if you suck, you have to think about it for a week. You know, and and uh, but if you're going on stage more than more than one time a week, hopefully it, it you know fades faster. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, for me, that's like the the thing. It's like if you have a bad set, it's like it's like I just want to get on stage as quickly as possible. Yeah, you want to get back up there again. Like, no, I'll show you. I'll show you what I can do. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just people. A lot of people, especially if they're early on, will kind of feel the opposite. Like, I don't want to take a break because it's, it's like that's like the worst thing you can do. Yeah, yeah. Is to take like an extended hiatus mm-hmm. no. if, when you've had a bad set. Um, yeah, it, it's it's weird though. As, as comedians, I feel like there's this um, there's this dichotomy where we're all super critical of our own act, and we think at every step of the way our own act is shit but we simultaneously have an irrational confidence about how good we are like those two things coexist and I don't know how they coexist but they do that's the weirdest it's it's the weirdest like discrepancy about comedians is like What's the what's the stereotype? What's the trope of the comic? It's like the miserable loner, right? Like, oh, like I'm terrible, I'm not good enough. And then what do they actually do? They go on stage in front of strangers in with a spotlight and a microphone and insist that they're the only one allowed to talk for an hour. You know, it's, like, it's <laughs> yeah. such a weird, it's such a weird mix. Like, you know, like yeah. are you a miserable loner or like you know, at, at the same time you crave that attention, obviously, and obviously think you're worthy of that attention. Right. You know, you have to. And that's the part that that people don't talk about. It's like you have to be irrationally self-confident to, to yeah to in some way yeah I, but I, I guess like, what was it you said you had been wanting to get into it mm-hmm. that you knew that you wanted to get into what was it that drew you to want to get into comedy I think it was just like always being a, 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 like attracted to performance and, and watching and, and enjoying stand-up and um, and when I was living in Boston I just um, you know I had chances to go to some like local stand-ups and see some of the things and maybe with some of the rational confidence being like I think I could do that. Like, I think I want to try that, you know? And, um, and I just always knew that I never wanted to, to believe that I wanted to try and never actually give it a shot, you know, um, just, just to be like, I'll talk about it. So, so yeah, I, I had started writing down like joke ideas from like years before I ever went first on stage. I had like a little notebook with jokes before I ever actually went up on stage the first time. So, yeah. um, it was, it was just something that was always in the back of my mind and I always pushed it off as not having enough time. And then when, you know, the opportunity came to actually do it like I kind of like, like you know I felt like I had to do it like I couldn't I couldn't turn it down so yeah it's weird because I like I had watched comedy like on Comedy Central or on YouTube before but I maybe only seen one or two live comedy shows yeah. in my life I remember when I was in college I maybe saw like a shitty one in Philadelphia yeah, yeah. and then um, when I was living in New York I went to Danger Fields mm-hmm. once on like 60th Street on the east side in, uh, in Manhattan but besides that and, and when, I, when I went to those shows I was never like oh I could get up and do that or I want to do that yeah. it just it never even occurred to me did you have any sort of performing background when you were younger, or? Uh, it's fucking embarrassing, but in high school I was in a rap group. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Vermont. You have to understand that uh, that white people can rap in Vermont. That's accept- That's that's fine. You know, we can do. Well, because they're from what I, from my experience being in Vermont, because they're just. 
there are so few of other people that there's no one to tell you you can't rap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was my senior prediction in high school, actually, was um, Sam moves to a real city and realizes he can't become a rapper. <laughs> he leaves Vermont and realizes that it is not a viable career path. <laughs> but I was really into, like, yeah, I was really into rapping in high school. So me and my friend would do these shows and... Um, and actually, this the, the kid who was a year younger than us, who was a DJ in high school, and he was very, very musically talented, and he's gone on to be in this group called The Knox. I don't know, um, they just opened for Justin Bieber on his like, European tour, so he's like, he's gone beyond, 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 but and, and he wasn't, we weren't like working with him, he was a, his own, like doing his own musical thing, but he would organize these hip-hop shows, mm. and so we'd perform in these local hip-hop shows. So wow. I had been on stage before and, uh, and and done stuff like that, so um, so that was some kind of performance stuff, and I always just like, uh, you know, I always just, was, I was never, you know, people have that big fear of public speaking, you know, like, you know yeah. Jerry Seinfeld's got that classic joke, right, about public speaking, but um, uh, to me, it never, that never really bothered me. I never really had that fear about like I wasn't I wasn't scared to death to get on stage. I was just scared to death that I wouldn't be funny. That was it. Like, mm. you know, like the the actual act of getting up and doing it wasn't that wasn't the hardest part. So yeah, um, yeah. But we started in a different place. I don't know how it was for you when you started in Shanghai. One of the hardest things was studying in Gaoshan was like we were the first ones doing comedy there. Yeah. So when you started doing it. Uh, one of the unexpected things I found so hard is every night you did comedy was like a really special event. Mm. You know, it was like you do a show and it's like after the show, like we got to have some beers and celebrate, like hang out, like have an after party because like we just did this comedy show. No one's doing comedy here. Like it's like a really special, you know, like, yeah. and it's not the way comedy should be. Like you're doing comedy four or five times a week. You can't party you, every time. Every single time. Yeah. But I mean... Yeah, because that, that's the thing. I came into Shanghai at a different time chronologically in the development of the scene than where you were in Kaohsiung. Yeah. And, but, I mean, from talking to the people that were in Shanghai and in mainland China at the beginning, mm. it sounds a lot like what you're talking about where, you know, you'd have maybe these once-a-month shows yeah. where, like, people would come and, like, they'd just get pissed drunk and all, all like uh, they were kind of there to pay attention but they were just like figuring out oh how drunk can i get at the show like, yeah. like, and yeah it's just it's just a different vibe whereas like now you know you guys have gotten to the point and like we've got in shanghai where you're you're to the point where you're like we just like consistently want to run like good tight professional shows exactly yeah with that's funny comedians like that's what we're doing and we can't like it's not it's not special every time we do it. It should be routine. It should be. It should be. That's where you, and that's where you need to get to, and that was the hard thing to uh, to to switch away from, especially when you're doing these road shows to a place that might not have like they might not even have musical acts visiting them. You mm -hmm. know, we go into the you know the the sixth or seventh largest city in Taiwan. You know, they 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 don't have a lot of entertainment options going through. They might have some local talented people, but like touring people, not a lot. So they all come out to the show, and they all, you know, everyone wants to have a drink and have some beers and stuff like that. And it just turns into like, you know, a party every time you're doing the show, and so, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to get away from, yeah. Well, and and the interesting thing is like because the scene's pretty young, you've gotten to the point where you know you're one of the comedians here that's been, you know, doing it relative, you know, longer than a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. um, but you're you're also running a lot of the shows. How, I mean, how how do you do you do you like running the shows? Do you feel like it sometimes takes away the time that you have to spend putting together the shows? Do you feel like it takes away from working on your act? 
or do you think it's productive in terms of you're making those connections because you're always talking with other comedians to both book them and yeah. you know put shows together like what do you what do you think about kind of balancing all that i mean you kind of you hit the nail on the head like you know that that's the flip side to it is that the time you put into running shows is beneficial because you meet people from around and uh and you also are free to give yourself like i host every show and i'm gonna host every show that I run because I really want to work on my crowd work this year. Like that's my goal for the year in comedy mm-hmm. is to get better at crowd work consistently. And being a host gives me the most opportunities to do that. So I get to host every show. Um, the downside is you're absolutely right. Like every hour I spend, you know, designing Facebook ads or making promotions or setting lineups or talking to venues is an hour I'm not writing. And uh, and I definitely feel that stagnation sometimes of like fuck like the the energy I used to put into just my comedy and my act. You have to find you. You have to make sure you still have time for that, and so that's a balance, a constant balancing act, is making yeah. sure you still have time for for working on your own stuff. Overall, I like running the shows. I like I like being able to do it, but um, but yeah, definitely need to do a better job of staying on top of my own material for sure. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I mean, what are some of the like in trying to both get better as a comedian, but also build the scene here? Kind of, what are some of the biggest kind of roadblocks or obstacles that you feel like you've had to overcome or contend with to both become a better comedian mm-hmm. here, but also just to grow the scene in general? I think the, the biggest thing, well, like, you know, you, you reach that, that starting point, and um, I think one of the biggest things is, uh, is when you're starting out and there's a new scene, is understanding that everyone is not as into it as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Shanghai, I think you guys have the benefit because you're so established and you have such regular shows that if someone's not acting professionally or not willing to show the level of commitment you want, you can kind of afford to move on from people like that quickly and they're not yeah. going to make it. But here, you know, like, um, you know, in, in, in Taipei, we're lucky to have a, a solid roster and Gaoshuang has a good roster too of people who are committed and show up every week. When we first started, it wasn't like that. When we first started, we had to book people on shows who wouldn't go to open mics because we had to fill shows, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and Rob and I both really struggled with this being like, we were really, really committed to it. We're putting people in positions to be in good shows, but they're not as committed to it. But you just have to realize for some people, it's just like, they just want to do a stand-up show. And so they, they have that story for the rest of their life about the time they did stand-up, you know. They're not yeah. thinking about it as like, um, as some, they don't want it to be a responsibility or an obligation. Right. When it starts to feel like work, they say, fuck this, and they, and they bounce, you know. And, um, and you can't alienate those people when you're starting out. And getting people to commit to the road shows, you know. Yeah. Like I've got, you know, Rob tells me we're going to drive five hours to go do a show in Sinchu, you know. Like I'm, I'm on board, sign me up right away. That's a hard sell for a lot of people being like, I'm going to spend ten hours in a van, you know, on my Saturday going up there to, to do a comedy show in front of how many people you don't know. So. Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of those things that separates, you know, people who are really into comedy from just people that are doing it casually. It's just like the the people who are just doing it casually and it's just a thing that they do once in a while, not really committed to, they'd be like, why would I drive five hours to go do five to ten minutes on stage? Yeah. Then you're like, why wouldn't you drive five to ten hours? It's five to ten minutes on stage. Yeah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> what else are you doing? Yeah, like yeah. Right. Well, like, what else do you have to do with your time? You got five minutes here? Like, you gotta, you gotta drive. Like, you know, yeah, like, stage like that's it the stage time is is all like that's the be all end all so you know once you once you accept that then that seems way better to drive that that time so right um so i mean like since you've recently started 
you know, kind of a new outfit here in mm-hmm. Taipei mm-hmm. Two Three Comedy mm-hmm. since you've moved here. Have you have you felt like your experience having to like bang your head against the wall going to all these different cities um, in Taiwan and all of that experience? Do you feel like that's that's helped you and informed what you've done in setting up the the, the club here and, and what you guys are doing? It's absolutely made me way more appreciative of what we have here. You know the fact that like last night, you know we can we can pack um, you can pack the bar and we have to the point where we have to turn away people at the door. When I've been doing shows where like you show up in a city and find out some other foreigner has a birthday party, so no one's at your show, you know, like and doing all those shows I talked about with when nobody shows up or we don't have a mic or a sound system, I appreciate just you know the just the ba- having the basics of a simple show and having a place that's like a, a home that's willing to have us back, you know, like to not feel like we're out in the wilderness or something like that doing it on our own. Yeah, it definitely makes me way more appreciative of what we have here and uh, and and see where it's going, you know. So. Um, if we make as much progress in the next year as we have in the last year, you know, the, then we're gonna have a really strong scene. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be really good. It's gonna be up there with the other Southeast Asian cities that have really good English language stand-up scenes. So, just judging based on the show last night, I think you guys are off to a really great, great start. Um, you know, with working, working with the with, with the new venue here, and I think it's a, uh, it's it's promising. You have a lot of, um, you know, comedians that are that are new but clearly have talent and are clearly committed mm-hmm. and I think that that's that that's all all a really a really good really good foundation um, I guess I guess before we before we finish up here I mean is there uh, I guess do you have anything anything else that kind of you you think is kind of crucial to kind of your your story as both a person and a and a, and a comedian and it kind of like what's what's informed kind of what you've become today in terms of any anything that you've overcome or any challenges that you face that have that have kind of changed how you've approached comedy or how you've approached life here yeah I mean for me like um, I never thought I was gonna be here this long you know I came to Taiwan um, my, my plan was to, uh, I, you know, I'd taken the LSATs a while before. My plan was to do law school. Uh, I spent my first year applying to law schools, uh, moved back home, and two weeks before law school started, I, I withdrew from my class and pulled out and, uh, oh, wow. and, moved, back to, and moved back to Taiwan. Um, and, and within two weeks of landing back in Taiwan, I started doing stand-up. So, okay. like, on a dime, within the space of two months, you know, my focus went from getting ready for law school and preparing to really not knowing what I wanted to do or what was going on or having anything really like grounding or, or consistent with what I thought about for my future to discovering stand-up and realizing this is something that I, that I wanted to pursue the way I did. So, I mean, it's just for me, it's just like being open to, um, being open to whatever comes your way, you know, like, uh, and, um, in some ways, you know, like making the decision not to go to law school was just as important a decision as any I've made in terms of like a, a proactive decision of actually doing something. Just knowing that something wasn't right for me beforehand and, and stepping out of the way um, yeah. was, a, was, was really, really crucial for me and, uh, and, and uh, a big thing that informed my time. Um, was, was there, I mean, it sounds like you kind of pulled out at the last minute. Yeah. Was, there, was there a moment of realization or something that happened that it, that was like a eureka moment that told you this isn't what I need to do with my life. Yeah, basically, um, I was like I don't know, like um, 
if people like know much about like uh, about law school and like job prospects and stuff after law school, the eureka moment for me was when I finally broke it down to look at the um, best case worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. So. I think the worst case, if you focus on the worst case, it's pretty easy for everything. Like, what's the worst case if I go to law school? I'm going to have a ton of debt and no job and I'm going to be fucked. What's the worst case if I don't go to law school? I'm going to have no job and be fucked. You know, like, the worst case was bad either way. So I was like, well, yeah. let's try to be positive focus. What's the best case scenario? Well, the best case is, you know, I, I take my energy I was using the law school. I find something else. I, I go back to teach. Maybe I work on getting my teaching certificate and, uh, and, and build that, you know, whatever. What's the best case for law school? And that's when the Eureka moment came. It was like the best case, if I go into law school and somehow I'm the perfect lawyer, you know, I'm the best, like I'm the best at it, but you can't know before you go to school, yeah. right? And uh, I win law school. I'm the top <laughs> of my class. I, and I, I get the best prize. So like, you, well, you win I, law school. I win. That's they, right. yes, they give yes. me a trophy at the end of the law school, like I'm the winner. So I get in your, your prizes you know, an 80 hour a week job, you know, making a lot of money, but working in an office all day doing shit like that. I was like, wait, like I, that never really seemed that appealing to me. Like just realizing like that, that if the, if the best prize doesn't even seem that appealing to me, then I, I clearly haven't really thought it through that much, you know? So yeah, you know, that's, that was the kind of moment where I was like, okay, this is uh this is not, this is not the path I, I really want to take. So I stepped away from it. And, um, and that was a big shift because, you know, I took the LSAT early before I even moved to Korea. Um, so it was, Five, like you get five years on your LSAT, and I yeah. and I used all five. I know. Oh them. yeah. So for five years, I had it in my back pocket, and someone would be like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm teaching now, but I'm gonna be a lawyer. I'm gonna go to law school later." Yeah. So it's kind of stepping away from a part of my identity, like um, right. That I had, that yeah. I carried with me. Cause, yeah, because you lived in Korea. How long did you live in Korea before? Yeah, about two years. Yeah. Two okay, years so you were in Korea, Korea for two years. Then how long? How long in total have you been in Taiwan? I've been in Taiwan for three years now. So okay. Yeah. Okay, so a total of five years in Asia. Yeah, I guess. basically five years in Asia. A little time in Boston in between, but yeah. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so it was just kind of that, that moment where you, you there was that there was that fork in the road. Yeah, there um, was, yeah. Where you could have really a, a life, a, a hugely life-changing decision. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I was really I was really paralyzed by indecision. It was for one of the first times in my life, like uh, I've always been a fairly decisive person in terms of knowing what I want and where I want to go. And uh, that was one of the few times where I was just really paralyzed by not knowing what I wanted to do. And then finally being able to analyze it that way by looking at the best and worst case scenarios, um, was really, really freeing. And I think was one of the things that put me in the state of mind where I was open to trying anything new. And right when I landed, my buddy asked me to jump in a, a stand-up show. And so... And you were just kind of like, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm starting a new chapter in my life. Yeah. Like, Why not? I've always, I've always said I'm going to try this. You know, like, okay, let's do it now. Let's do it now. Why not? Yeah. Why not? I mean, so it's it sounds like kind of your decision to not go to law school was almost a, like a bit of a catalyst for you starting to do stand-up. Because yeah. it was... It was almost like I'm, I'm jettisoning what I thought I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. And then like, okay, there are these other things that I really want to do with my life, and comedy seemed to be close to the top of that list. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, something there. It was almost like in, it was instead of, it's kind of seems like a eureka moment, but it really was kind of shedding something that I had, I had, I had carried with me for a long time without really analyzing really well. Like I was the kind of guy be like, oh, I'm teaching now, but I'm gonna go to law school. 
But if you had followed that line of questioning a little bit further, you might have seen my responses start to break down. You know, like, what kind of law do you want to do? Uh, just, you know, like the... Interesting law. Interesting law. Yeah, I want to be a, yeah, I want to be a, a super law. Or like international law. That's what people always say. And it's like, there's like, there is no international law. There's no, there's no globe-trotting lawyer. Or anything, you know, with a you passport just, and a briefcase. You're like, I just want to show up in countries and lawyer. And lawyer, exactly. Basically, what I was describing was an English teacher who gets paid better. <laughs> I was like, I want, I want to do what I'm doing now for more money. Well, then you're like, okay, maybe I just should just be an English teacher. Yeah, I should just be an English teacher. You know, an English teacher who does comedy. That's, yeah, exactly. The, and that's where I'm at. So I'm, I'm yeah, happy that's, with that. That's where you're at. Yeah, and you do seem you do seem happy. You, you seem yeah. like you got a lot of things in your life that um, you know feel feel rewarding to you, and, yeah. and you're you know you're doing a lot of great things here to build the, the comedy scene in in Taiwan. So it seems like you've you found. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm happy where we're going. So yeah, it's gonna be good. Yeah, well that's that's fantastic. Um, yeah, Sam, thanks for thanks for being on the podcast. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, this is really fun. We're actually I, I should mention before we get off, we're we're recording this in your brand new apartment that you just signed the lease on today. The the mattress is still wrapped. It's still yeah, yeah. The mattress is still wrapped in plastic. I'm looking at your lease that has a a wax thumbprint on yeah, it. It's official. That means you know it's real. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, this is literally. The, this is the first thing that has ever happened in this apartment. This is it. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. This, this is it. it. So I'm. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm honored that I was able to make make some some history here. But we broken it in. Yeah. Broken it in <laughs> nicely with a with a podcast. But thanks. This was uh, this Appreciate was fantastic. It. And um, yeah. For uh, yeah, it's been uh, the failure show. Uh, awesome. Until until next time. Yeah.